Grab a cuppa and take a seat. This is the Disability Podcast. Hi and welcome to the Disability Podcast with Zoe, Bethany, Cameron and Steve. This week we're going to be talking about diabetes. Actually, I should say before we start, and you guys might feel like this is a similar thing, but I definitely feel like even though it's your thing, you don't, sorry, I should have said from the top, I have, I have diabetes, <laughs> but I think sometimes you go from feeling like I know this thing inside out to kind of going like, it's not always on your mind. So you're not necessarily always having all the information on you. So I'm, I'm going to proceed like I know what I'm talking about. But the disclaimer is, I might not always have everything absolutely correct. So, folks, go and look it up. You've got the internet. Because what type do you have? You have type 1, don't you? So I have type 1, which basically means the organ that is your pancreas, mine just does not work. To try to, as briefly and without meandering and waffling as I would normally do, your pancreas creates insulin, which breaks down sugar. So if you guys eat a chocolate bar or something, your body your pancreas automatically creates the insulin that it needs to break down the amount of sugar and carbohydrate that is in that chocolate bar so that your blood sugar level always stays between four and six millimoles per liter or whatever the measurement is. Because my pancreas doesn't work, I have to manually take insulin to try to do that same process. So it's kind of, that's what the, probably the easiest way of thinking it is you're, you're automatic and I'm manual. And type two, it's a little bit more complicated because your pancreas sort of works, but just not quite right. And it tends to be more type two is kind of normally a secondary condition. Quite often it's if people are overweight or um, a lot of older people actually get it. One of my grandparents got type two very late on as a result of, she was taking a load of different medications, but I think it was maybe a steroid or something she was taking that kind of the side effect was she ended up being type two diabetic. So I'm type one and I have been for 24 years. Yeah, 24 years. November 1996. Well, I was just thinking it's interesting because this is something I've been talking about with epilepsy and what we talked about with dyslexia, which is like complete misunderstanding of where these things kind of come from. Because I, for a really long time, everyone always said to me, you get diabetes if you're overweight, pretty much. If you're like, you know, you're of an unhealthy weight that's how you get diabetes and some people are kind of born with it and there are two types and that was kind of in my head but I was always very much under the impression that it was something that you kind of got more often than it was something someone was born with yeah it, I mean the, the, the main thing to say about it is people have been aware of for a long time and is quite prevalent they still don't really know everything about it and I think that's probably one of the most frustrating things because I feel now like when I go to clinics and things you're still getting told the same things you were 20 years ago. And, oh, don't worry, we're just around the corner from this, and we're just around the corner from this. And it probably wasn't until very recent years where I started to actually see developments and things and treatments and stuff. But my understanding is that it's not like genetic, as in you're not born with it. But basically, the theory would be that I was born being genetically predisposed to being able to develop it. And... They still don't know kind of what makes it kick in, but they think there's various things that can be triggers. And I think because of when it happened with me, they kind of thought it was probably kind of puberty and you're kind of, 
your change your body's changing so it just sort of something just went and then the pancreas stopped working but um two years before they diagnosed me they actually took me in for loads of uh, tests and scans and things because they thought I was epileptic. And there was maybe a couple of things, but one incident in particular, I woke up in the middle of the night completely like kind of having a fit and unable to kind of communicate and my body was all rigid and everything. And it's only in years later that we thought about it and realized that was probably the, me having my first hypo, which was actually almost two years before I was diagnosed. So yeah, I mean, I think there's still, there's still loads to be kind of uncovered but that's probably one of the more frustrating things because you sort of feel like when you know where you're at it's a lot easier how much do you think like you're talking about doctors and them kind of being stilted in um kind of learning more about the disease and all of that stuff how much do you feel is what you've learned through online and through other people versus what you've been told from doctors do you feel like you've been more self-advocating than you know being told yeah, I think that's a really good question. I, th- I think it's tough because actually an ex-girlfriend of mine was diabetic as well, which is a funny one. I was thinking about that the other day and um, when you guys were talking about this podcast because it's very much like not encouraged. I suppose the idea is that like if you ended up in a relationship with somebody and you were both diabetic, that means if you have children, they're probably more likely to develop it. I suppose you're just, it's like the odds are more, less, whatever. But and I, I probably have had, I think I've had a couple of friends over the years who were diabetic and you guys might identify with this as well. I think you, you learn in different ways when you're around other people and it's the sort of living with the condition part that you kind of get more from because it's not some guy talking to you in a, you know, I'm a professional medical physician. It's like a real person and they've, they've lived it too. Everybody probably would have a similar experience. I think sometimes with medical professionals, it's been really difficult because, you know, I suppose especially in, in this country at times, everything feels a bit like triage. You're sort of in and they just want to get on with the next patient. And But at the same time, um, when I first lived in London and in a three-year period, I'd, li- I'd lived in eight different places in London, I think. There was one clinic in... Oh, I should remember the, the area now, East London. Was it like Newham or some forest? Or forest? Anyway, I'd never been treated better by like a consultant in a diabetic clinic. It was like going for like an MOT or something. The first day I went to the clinic, I was in there for ages. She did like absolute thorough checking everything, history, physical, uh, went over every possible thing. And every time I went back, it was the same person. And you kind of felt like, Oh, this is amazing now. I'm I'm getting care and attention and it's continuing on each time. So they see your development or where things are going right or going wrong. So that was a good experience. And also there's a few different courses. There's a course called I think Daphne and there's another one as well, which the name I've forgotten, which is sort of like a back to basics course. And this is what I mean I was saying earlier about no matter how long you've lived with the condition, quite often you can just forget some of the basic stuff at times. And those courses were great because it was really like intense going back over the basics. And one of the main things in diabetes is carbohydrate counting because really all the food you eat, that's the only thing that you have to keep a track of because then as mass, you're counting how many carbs and then working out how many units of insulin to take. And I suppose it is like homework. If you keep on top of it, you can have a more regular sugar level, um, which is the toughest part of it because, you know, you're always getting told by doctors, you know, keep controlling those sugars, you know, just keep... But somebody whose pancreas is working, your blood sugar only ever goes between like four and six on the scale. And the scale goes like this. So like my sugar can go anywhere on that. 
and they're wanting you to stay on this little band where everyone else is, which is kind of impossible, you know. Even if you're really good at maths, you're kind of not ever quite on that line. So I think a bit of both. I think definitely when I was younger, I think it was frustrating talking to doctors because you just kind of thought it was really impersonal and, you know, what do you guys know and everything. But I think sometimes you can get lucky. And uh, it is great, I think, talking to people who... I've had a few diabetic nurses as well over the years who are really like they know their stuff and they're invested in it. And I was just back home in Enniskillen in Northern Ireland last month. No, yeah, last month. And I have a sensor now in my arm that I, I, I scan my blood with. And I brought two of them with me and they both came off my arm like within the first week. And I was like, because I hadn't brought the finger pricker blood tester with me. So I thought I was screwed. And I uh, contacted the GP and the chemist over here and said, like, any chance you could send, like, a prescription over to my little hometown, you know? And didn't hear anything back from them. And I just thought, it's a fun, funny moment. I went, what would my mother do? And I um, rang up the diabetic nurse from the Enniskillen Diabetic Clinic, who I was no longer a patient of, and explained the situation. And she's like, call up the reception. I'll, I'll leave you a sensor there or whatever. And... Um, you know, that's the thing that makes a difference because I think over the years, you know, you, you get used to that impersonal kind of clinic triage, you know, turf kind of thing. So, yeah, I think a bit of both. I think I've probably tried to avoid the internet, going back to your original question, in terms of I think the more I look up on the internet for anything, sometimes it can freak me out a little bit. You can kind of tend to go to worst-case scenario. But funny enough, actually, because I just got oh, I went for an, my annual eye, eye screening last week which again is a tricky one because like everything else my eyes kind of can vary in terms of damage okay damage okay a bit like the blood sugar level they fluctuate um and I got this letter the other day results of the eye screening which says um your test results show you have diabetic maculopathy which um, diabetic retinopathy is something they talk about a lot, but it's basically, it's damage to the back of your eye. So it's frustrating because I've, I'm pretty sure I've been told that on previous times, but um, you go and get your eyes checked and then they'll say, oh, you're on the verge of damage. And then they'll say, well, we'll, we'll wait and see what you're like in six months time. And then you go in and they go, oh, you're fine. And then it sort of swings back and forth. And it's frustrating because like a lot of medical conditions and disabilities, they love to do lots of monitoring, but there's kind of not like a, a go-to treatment. They'll just say, oh, keep an eye on your blood sugars. And it's like, well, that's what I've been doing for 24 years. You know, you got any other ideas? They can do laser treatment, I think, but it's sort of like last chance saloon then. It's one of those ones where it's frustrating. All you can do is just keep trying to get a tighter control on your blood sugar as much as you can. Yeah, it's kind of just slapping a Band-Aid on it, not really like treating the wound or anything like that. And yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it, and it's the fact that it's things like, so, you know, control your blood sugar, what's your blood pressure, you know, what's your cholesterol, all these things that, you know, most of us are all trying to do, watch those things anyway. I mean, there's always things you can do better and, and there's certainly things I can always do better, but I think that's where the difficulty is, is because I don't know if you guys would ever think this, but I think I always think quite often, like, am I a good diabetic? Am I a, an average diabetic? Am I a bad diabetic? You know, I think, I probably have only known a handful of diabetics really well over the years. And most of the time, if you're, if you're doing a direct comparison, this is like being back in the course, you know, they say, don't compare yourself to other people. <laughs> so all you can do, nothing else to compare to. Um, 
So I think I've probably always thought, yeah, I think I'm doing all right. I don't think I'm doing any worse than these people. And I, re- I remember my ex-girlfriend had quite a few times where she had to end up in hospital and stuff. And I mean, I've never, I don't think I've ever, no, I've never had that kind of thing. Mm. I've never even really properly, at one time we're kind of almost blacked out entirely. I have had quite a few bad hypos, but yeah, it's a, it's a weird one as well, because generally with diabetes, if you... If, you're, if your blood sugar is verging on the low too often, and that's where you have hypos, which is where you kind of get weak and start freaking out. And, and if you keep going on that scale, you could end up in a diabetic coma. So that's like short-term bad. And then if your sugar is running high too much for a long period of time, that's sort of long-term bad. You can do damage to your organs, to your eyes, funny enough, your extremities, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's, again, where I find it weird because... I've had diabetic nurses telling me, oh, you have too many hypos, you're going low too often. I thought kind of, if you had a hypo every day, that was sort of regular, that was normal. But actually they're like, no, that should not be happening at all. So then I was like, oh, right, okay. Well, I was always in the mindset of keep your sugar down, keep your sugar down, don't go high. If you go high, it's terrible. So then I think I started to like relax that and try to make sure I was never having hypos. And now I'm at a position where they send me a letter saying there's damage to your eyes. So I'm going that means it was too high for too long. So why didn't you just let me have the hypos? But then, you know, and I thought having hypos every day, it's just kind of about how tough you can be to handle that. Because, you know, like any other diabetics I knew would be like, oh, you don't want to have hypo. It's awful. It's horrible. I mean, it is. It's a horrible experience. But I always kind of felt like it's like going for a run or something. You know, you go through it and then you'll feel better on the other side. But then another girl I knew who was diabetic informed me that every time you have a hypo, effectively your brain cells are busting, (laughs) which then I started to freak out because there was a period of time where I started to notice there was like various kind of memory loss and things going on. And I was like joining these dots like a madman thinking, wow. So yeah, I suppose that's, that's the thing. It always comes back to that band of where your guy's blood sugar is automatically. And I'm trying to traverse this crazy tightrope and both sides are bad <laughs> and it's really hard to stand on this little t- thin tightrope in the middle I was just gonna say I know you did the thing for uni about your experience of having a hypo and bringing that all together do you want to maybe just like explain to people listening how it feels when you have a hypo yeah uh, that's a good question as well because it, again like all of it it's like a scale so when, when your blood sugar would start to go low, so let's say my blood sugar starts to go below four, because your guys' blood sugar generally won't ever go lower than that. It's just like it's like an automatic thing. So if it would start to go lower than four, and I'm actually maybe, maybe I'm feeling it a wee bit now. I'll check mine and see. You'd sort of feel a bit weak in your legs and your hands might get a bit shaky. Um, and that's just, I mean, most people can relate to that because it's sort of, if you hadn't eaten in a long time, you'd feel pretty flaky anyway. Um and that's not, that's actually 12.5, which is starting to ascend. Um, and it basically, what the way it works is it's like your body is telling you, right, there's something up with your sugar, deal with it. So as you don't deal with it, these sort of symptoms or effects or whatever, get the jump up stages or whatever. So if I took sugar then in 15 minutes time, I'd be grand, I'd be back to normal again. If I didn't, then you'd probably get it's going to be sweat on the back of your neck, rolling down the back of your neck. Um, your tongue sort of starts to get a bit tingly. Um, you sort of get the sort of pins and needlesy kind of crampy thing maybe in your wrists or your balls of your feet. Um, that was actually a good one. Um, Panic Room. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. 
mm-hmm. Jodie Foster, and it might have been a young Kristen, Kristen, uh, Kristen what do you call her? You call her Vampire? Uh, uh, Kristen Stewart, yeah. Yeah, yeah, David Fincher film. That I remember that being one of the first things I saw in mainstream media where they got something right. There's a bit where she's having hypo, and he does a lot of sort of Guy Ritchie type kind of cuts and there's a bit where you see her feet kind of go like this and I was like ah yeah they got they did the research and then generally you start to get that's why I thought I was maybe having one now <laughs> it starts to become more difficult to communicate I, I always call it like tangent city or you know tangent avenue because you sort of can't get to what you're trying to say too, too easily you sort of get distracted on what where you're trying to go it might actually get difficult to just enunciate and there's other various things on that and then if you really I, I don't get this anymore but if it gets really bad and you haven't treated it um I have started to hallucinate before which is totally freaky because if you could kind of control it it'd be a brilliant thing but it's just generally very dark and horrible so um you'd sort of see I you'd sort of see the walls becoming all your lines of everything just become totally I had one time where my hand sort of turned into like a pig's trotter and um, I tried to look at my phone, you know, to like communicate to somebody and it became like the background and my arm and everything like joined together. So that's like extreme, extreme if you haven't treated it and it just keeps going low and keeps going low. And ultimately then you would end up in a diabetic coma. Mm, wow. So. <laughs> and now how long is that window of like not being able to treat it? Is it hours or days or? Well, See, I'm probably a bad example for this because I think I've generally, not generally, that's the wrong word to say, because I think I'm a lot more controlled than I used to be. I think in the past I'd gone incredibly long periods of time of not dealing with low sugar. And I probably foolishly did start to think, oh, I've got like more of a capacity to be able to endure this or something. I think there's probably plenty of times where I should have been in diabetic comas. Um, Most of those blood test remitter things, they only go down to, I think, maybe 0.7 on their scale. And then after that, they just say low because they can't measure any lower than that. And I have had that quite a few times. And likewise, the other way, I think above 30-something, it goes it just says high because it's like off the scale. And this is not, I just realized now, you know, effectively we're, we're trying to do this as a, a public podcast thing. So I'm not encouraging that sort of behavior. Um, I've definitely been aware of other people who have, been hospitalized you know probably a lot sooner than what I have experienced before so I think it's just you know like all our bodies are different you know mm-hmm. but really if your blood sugar is going low you want to deal with it as soon as you can um, I used to find it tough in work environments because as much as you try to explain to people you're diabetic especially if you're working on like a busy shop floor or something if you feel a hypo coming on what I used to do was just without anyone noticing, try to run into like the staff room, grab a can of Coke from the vending machine and rush back out and continue on so nobody would notice. But like you have to, even once you take the, the glucose, you have to wait 15 minutes before you even feel anywhere near normal again. So I should have been doing that and just sitting tight. But I didn't like the idea of somebody walking into the staff room and you're just sitting there because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how much you try to explain yourself. People are always going to say, uh, uh, you know, I think they call us the sugar babes for a while. Me and my ex-girlfriend and another diabetic were all working in the same place at the same time. And there's a few times where all three of us were sitting in the staff room (laughs) drinking cans of Coke. And they're like, oh, the bloody sugar babes. It's like the pink ladies. You guys should get jackets. (laughs) 
so what is like your go-to thing to kind of help with the low sugar? Is it, is can and so Coke great or um, like a candy bar? Or? In the old days, so they would generally say, and this is where I, I do think I'm, I'm in line. Although this is the other thing I was going to say, and you guys might, might have ex- some experience of this as well. I feel in 24 years that the rules have constantly changed. Like mm-hmm. you go one time and they tell you this thing. Like there's an example, injection sites. When I first started, it was like your backside, your thighs, your stomach, your arms. And I hated doing my arms because especially when I was a kid, I was so skinny that I was like, um, you know, I can almost understand. Well, actually, I didn't have enough there. I always had a fat ass, so it was always okay doing there. But the other places, I was always like, oh, sore. And then after a few years, they said, oh, don't do it in your arms. You should never be doing it in your arms. I was like, well, what made you guys change your mind? And one that really winds me up is if you ever see, if there's anything illustrative on the internet, and you'll see a nurse checking, uh, especially it annoys me because I see it quite often if there's an old patient who's diabetic, you see a nurse taking a, a finger pricker blood test to check their glucose and they always do it on the tips of the fingers. That was like diabetes 101 class was like, never do it on the tips of your fingers. You've got nerves in the tips of your fingers. That's how you lose feeling in the tips of your finger. Do it on the side because nobody cares about the sides of your fingers. And every time you see it illustrated on a, on a stupid thing on, on the TV or the internet, they're always pricking the tips of the fingers. So anyway, things like that, they, they change the mind. So like chocolate is not, is not what you go to. Chocolate's difficult for diabetics anyway, because the process of breaking it down and how you digest it and everything is not straightforward. So if somebody's low sugar, going for a chocolate bar is not the best. So these sort of dextrose sweets, um, glucose sweets, is kind of what you want because they're quick and they're fast as well. The turnaround to keep being back to normal will be far quicker on these than, you know, eating toast or whatever, you know, eating like sweet things, like desserty sweet things are not really good because it's all refined sugar anyway, but it's, it's as bad for you in terms of your health, but also it doesn't do the job as quickly as something like this. In the old days, look, they would have said, oh, look, they've had to now adjust things with because it used to be, I don't know what the quantity was, but let's say, half a bottle of Luxate or a quarter bottle of Luxate or something would sort you out. And then, you know, in these recent years, all the sugar tax stuff and everything, and all the, the kids' soft drinks had to start reducing all the sugar. And they didn't think about the fact that like, it actually was a bit of a bad thing for diabetics because you'd now have to drink like a bottle and a half or something to get like the same amount of sugar. So, but yeah, generally sweet drinks are, are helpful too. But really those glucose sweets are the best because you kind of can measure it better. Like I know exactly what four sweets does or five sweets does or whatever. And they're quick. The other day I was at the pub, <laughs> as I usually am. And um, this has happened to me a couple of times at pubs. Like I've ordered a rum and coke and it's come and it's been like gross. And I'm like, you know, ask them, I'm like, why is this gross? And they're like, cause it's Coke Zero. And I'm like, at no point when I ordered this, did you tell me this was Coke Zero? This doesn't have any sugar in it. If I had diabetes, this could mm-hmm. genuinely be a dangerous thing for me. So have you had any experiences like that where you've been like, I need a sugary drink and they've just given you something that's sugar-free and completely unhelpful? I think I've had it quite a few times the other way where, I don't know, maybe I've gone out for dinner or something and ordered something and I've probably asked for the no sugar option as in like, because I'm in a position where I don't need it at that point in time. And then you get served like the regular, whatever. You guys probably appreciate this as well. It's a bit like we've talked quite a lot before about, you know, 
maybe being vegan or vegetarian or whatever it's the having to explain yourself but it's the frustrating part so even if you go to somebody oh is this is this regular sugar i actually i need to diet one or whatever the look that you'll get is just like and then you feel like well i'm not gonna do a bloody science lesson here with you to try to explain how much you nearly fucked me up there you know so i think that's the tough part is that you don't want to be a hassle but it's like Mm -hmm. me whenever i ask for a sugar one or a non-sugar one you have to give me what i ask for you know and that's not just like because that's good service it's like because it'll fucking kill me if you don't, you know? <laughs> just not something that people consider it's like so often like with um epilepsy something people don't think about is christmas lights having oh, lights yeah. outside of their house because it can cause people with photosensitive epilepsy to have seizures so i think sometimes it's just these things because people have no real grasp on them they don't think like this could be a massive problem for like a part of our population they're just like yeah it's fine it's cheaper just to give them coke zero or like you know it's yeah. fun it's fun to have flashing christmas lights and it's like you can actually really like end up damaging someone or like you know getting yeah. them in a diabetes coma getting someone injured through having a seizure so many of these different things like we were having a conversation the other day about kind of like not allergies and stuff and i was i was just thinking about the fact that i'm sure there's been times in the past where i've maybe cooked dinner for a bunch of people and yeah you probably normally know who even if you're having guests around you probably know who's coming but say somebody had like a new partner or something like that i don't necessarily think that it's ever been in my head to think like do you have any allergies or like anything like that? I mean, not allergies are probably talked about more than most things, but there's so many other things that, you know, people are like allergic to in other ways or, you know, can't deal with or whatever. And we probably should get to a point where people can have as much of an awareness about everything, Mm -hmm. you know, rather than just the ones that are most common or most talked about, you know. Also, I think the f- the whole food allergy push that they have now, because every restaurant you have to go, you go to, they have to ask you. It came from that really horrific situation in which that mm. woman yeah. bought a pret sandwich and it didn't say, and it killed her. Yeah. And so it's like, do we have to wait until somebody dies through this yeah. to start like paying yeah. attention to it? Well, isn't isn't that kind of a good? That's like a good reflection on the the nature of the world in general. It kind of feels like. It does take for people to die for people to kind of go. Oh, hold on! Is there is there is there a thing here that we have to maybe think about and deal with? You know, um, but yeah, I think that's something that I feel like I want to be more aware of because, and this is why I was excited when I heard that you guys were doing this because it's things like that, like Christmas lights. You know, what I've thought about that. And most of these things, when they're alien to, they sound a little bit silly even though like they're certainly not but i remembered hearing something you know about clapping you know that some people can that can trigger things that they really can't you know deal with and the first time i was hearing about people you know applauding somebody by like clicking their fingers or something instead i kind of thought that seems odd to me but that's just cuz i've been conditioned that this is normal why is this normal you know so i kind of thought those are the kind of things that we all probably need more awareness on is the stuff that is not on our radar you know what are kind of some misconceptions people have about diabetes and about how you're kind of portrayed like also in the media and just to kind of educate people who are not who don't know people who are diabetic or in that realm? yeah i think 
it's tough because this is where I think I verge into like how much of what I'm what what I'm saying is based on scientific fact, how much of it is based on my experience and my theories or whatever. You guys know, but for the listeners, um, I'm vegan as well. I was a vegetarian for over ten years before I became a vegan, and I think this is where potentially. I mean, I, I feel like I'm I'm talking on science, but I'm talking on a certain theory of science. So I'm not going to say this is goals. I'm just going to say this is what I believe in. There's a misconception. Most people think that you eat a lot of sugar, you get diabetes. And that is the biggest load of crap that there is. People who tend to have type 2 diabetes tend to be overweight or old. But that's, as I said before, it's like a secondary thing. It's like your body's going to start to break down and not function in ways that it should in general. Um, that's why even in, in lockdown and stuff, or in lockdown, during this pandemic, they seem to be really unclear about are diabetics in the vulnerable category, not in the vulnerable category. And it's my belief that the reason why there was so much confusion is because obviously on all these things, they're dealing with stats and, you know, it's when you make numbers work, when you don't make numbers work. A lot of people who have underlying health conditions of some sort will probably also have type two diabetes as a secondary thing in terms of numbers lots of these people who are dying could have type 2 diabetes it's not probably going to be the thing that made them vulnerable if that makes mm-hmm. sense mm-hmm. so that's the main one i mean in terms of our family uh, and and this idea as well that it's just genetic or whatever there was no one in my family with diabetes and even on the level above i think i had to go out to like a cousin of my dad maybe was the only person who'd ever had it i think so this idea that it's just genetic, as I said before, I think the idea is you could carry the gene that could develop it. So like my, my parents, my, one of them might have taken the carrier gene so that it meant that a kid could develop it potentially. But this idea that it's like set in stone, I think, is, is not true because, as I say, there's still so much that's unclear that they don't really know. But the main one is this idea that you eat lots of sugar and you get diabetes. When we were kids, my brother was really quite large when I was super thick thin skinny and I did every sport under the sun and ate far more of a rounded diet with fruit and vegetables all he would do was eat meat and drink two liter bottles of like Pepsi and Coke and he doesn't have diabetes and I do so this kind of idea that it's like what you eat develops it my my belief is that actually eating animal products and the fats involved in that affect you through your blood. And I think if we're going on the theory, as I said before, that I had the ability to develop it. It's an autoimmune disease. I had the ability to develop it. I think as much as puberty could be a trigger, because again, they theorize on this. They don't, they don't, they can't decisively say when you went through puberty, that's what triggered you having diabetes. I would have a theory that had I not eaten animal products, would I have developed it? Because I think that is actually more of a believable theory than this idea that, oh, you eat too much sugar or carbohydrate when you're young, you develop diabetes. Do you feel like your symptoms are better after becoming vegetarian and vegan? Well, you just queued me up perfectly there, Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> because, right, so in terms of what I was talking about earlier on, in terms of the blood sugar level when I test it there now that is like right at this moment blood sugar level there's another thing called an HbA1c which is like a long-term blood sugar level that they take when you go to a diabetic clinic and they take blood out of your arm and they can tell 
on on like a six month period what what your sugar has been like as opposed to what it's like day to day and I would say over the, those 24 years, my HbA1c was just always gradually going up. Each time I would go, it would have edged up a wee bit. And it's tricky enough as well because they sort of measure it in almost similar but not the same values. So you can't compare the two the same. But my memory was back then that they, it was sort of like the speed limits. So they probably would be, if you were like seven, so seven probably versus 70, they were like, oh, you know, you don't really want it to creep up anymore. I was gradually creeping up, always just in little increments, but it was always on the ascendancy. It was never really going down. And it was getting to the point where they're probably going to start to go, hey man, this is you know something we're going to have to do something about. And then I went home three years ago, became vegan and started eating an exclusively vegan diet. And the next time I went to the diabetic clinic and they took that HbA1c, they were like, what are you doing? And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, your HbA1c is like, is it 48 or 52 or something? And they were like, you're almost at the point of going low that we would start to get worried. They were like, we've never, ever seen this before. The only time I've ever gone into a diabetic, diabetic clinic and I was like in and out because they were just like high-fiving and everything. They were like, <laughs> just keep doing what you're doing, you know? So if ever I needed proof that a vegan diet is a better idea, there's somebody with a long-term health condition that has always been gradually getting worse. And in the period of time that I was home and all I was doing was eating a vegan diet, my HbA1c completely transformed. Big up plant food. Um, yeah. Do you eat a lot of carbs as well? Cause that kind of has glucose and sugars or is it more kind of vegetables? And yeah. Stuff? No, no, no. I eat, I mean, I eat pretty much everything just except animals. I definitely still eat too much carbohydrate and, you know, lockdown especially, I've overdone it on, on carbs. It would be great to kind of reduce them. The other thing about it is, see if I eat like a carb-free, say I, I go down for lunchtime and all I have is like a really nice big salad. I don't have to do any injection, you know, there's when there's no carbs involved, you don't have to inject. So, you know, that should really be more of an incentive to try to like get off carbs as much as possible. I mean, I've watched quite a few programs on various diets against each other. Yeah. There was one I saw where it was like potentially the oldest guy in the world being interviewed. And as always, his thing was quite a lot of moderation. He didn't actually eat any red meat. I think he said he ate fish once or twice a year or something. But it was generally a bit of this, a bit of that, love exercise. And I think probably the idea of cutting out in terms of you know carbs, proteins, fats, whatever, cutting out something completely could be a bit dangerous. But if I could reduce my carbs down to as little as possible, there's a, definitely, in terms of the vegan thing, there's an idea of eating whole foods actually can adjust, I think, both metabolism, but in terms of diabetes, I think it, it can adjust how, how your long-term sugar level can be. And it's something that I haven't really... All these things, it's like, it's like what I was saying about checking your blood, being like your mass homework eating like a really good dad is also like, it's hard work, you know, um, you have to put the time in and a lot of us have busy schedules and it's not always the easiest thing to do to kind of go and buy the foods that are the best and, and cook or deal with the foods as best as you can. But um, I think cutting out carbs for me is always going to be a good thing because I'm not doing enough exercise. Is it harder to keep track of it when you're doing something like drinking alcohol? Because that has sugar in it, but it's such varying amounts per drink. So if you're having something like a spiced rum, it's obviously much more sugary than having some vodka or something like that. So is it harder yeah. to keep track of when you're on a 
night well, out. Well, yeah, I think, yeah, I think the, the, the answer to that is, the reason why it's difficult is because it's not exact science, but as you say, a lot of times, a lot of what you might be drinking in terms of beers, if you're drinking beers, there's carbohydrate in that, right? So you're going to have to account for that as if you were eating you know, say you're eating a burger or something, I have to count how much carbs is in that. The process of your body breaking down the alcohol brings your sugar down. So you've got one thing going up, one thing going down, but it's not like they cancel each other out. Mm. You know, they're, they're working at different rates. So really the best thing to do is to keep testing. And actually I showed it earlier, but in the last sort of three years, I got this little blood tester with a sensor on my arm, which is, I said earlier to you guys that, I feel like for years they've been telling me, oh, you know, we're just around the corner from this development and that development. Now, in fairness, when I started in 1996, I used a real syringe and a, a vial of insulin and you had to actually draw it out and everything. Then they started using these insulin pens, which yeah, it didn't make a difference because the needle's a lot shorter than what they used to be in the syringe. The syringe was like quite big. But when they started, they were pens that you inserted cartridges of insulin in. So you were getting new cartridges each time, but you kept the pen. Now these are like disposable pens or they're like used once and throw away. So, I mean, that's a development, but you know, didn't really make that much difference. I suppose that the size of the needle didn't make a bit of a difference, but this made more of a difference because you didn't have to prick your fingers anymore to check your blood glucose. And also it's so easy when it's on your arm. And, and I remember actually the first time I was out and I, I got this and I met up with some mates that I hadn't seen in a while. And we were out and they used to call this Bjorn Borg um, because it was attached to my arm, you know, and I, I was probably wearing the old headband in those days. So anyway, it was a revelation because my mate Jude especially would always be on at me. Have you checked Bjorn? Have you checked Bjorn? When we would be out. And in the old days, because I would kick up such a fuss and be like, oh, I don't want to get all this out and check my fingers and everything. And, and actually I kept it in a pocket so he knew where it was. So it meant like anybody could take it out and scan me and you'd know immediately what your blood sugar was. But back to the alcohol, you kind of, there is again, like eating food, there's a mass to it. I think in terms of beer, the idea would be for every two pints, the first pint doesn't count. So you don't count it in your numbers. From then on, every two pints of beer, I need to inject one unit of insulin. And it's funny that you mentioned that so because I really have not been good at doing that lately. So there you go. There's a prime example of something that you learn something and then you just get used to not doing it and you forget about it. And But the, the more you do these sort of things, the easier to handle and maintain and you have less kind of you stay closer to being on that tightrope. It was funny, the example you said was like, you know, like a spirit and a, and a drink or whatever. When I was younger, I would generally, again, this was like crazy um, thinking, but I thought if I don't have a mixer, then I don't have any sugar involved. And obviously like when I'm saying pure alcohol, I mean like a spirit doesn't have carbohydrate in it. So you don't have to think about that in terms of your mass. But if you spend all night drinking straight spirits, you're going to have trouble, you know? So again, I think it's like, it's probably a better idea to drink beer in terms of <laughs> compared to drinking a bottle of vodka over the course of a night. But if you drink beer all night, then you have to think about the carbohydrate as well. So it's, yeah, like all of it, it's just, it's a bit messy. It's not as neat as you'd like it to be, you know. Maybe they should bring out like diabetic beer. Yeah. Well, there is, I think actually Holson Pills used to be the one that I think everyone told me you know, as soon as you tell people you're diabetic, definitely in the 90s, they would be like, oh, Holson Pills, because I think it was 
there's something specific about how they made it or whatever that it was supposed to be better for diabetics and they had no sugar in it or something. Mm-hmm. A lot of conditions, like you said, like diabetes is kind of the secondary or like it gets to a point where you can be pre-diabetic. Like I have PCOS, which is, they coin it as like the diabetes of the ovaries. And you're kind of more predisposed of getting diabetes and having to control insulin and stuff like that. So what advice would you give people that are maybe not diabetic, are there just finding out they have diabetes and how would you let them kind of wade through all of the information and stuff? What would you get? Yeah. Generally, I think I am a believer that trying to eat as, as healthy as possible is a, is a good way to go. I think that's also, we were talking earlier about misconceptions and things. I always hated when I was younger people going to, you can't eat that or you shouldn't eat that or whatever. The idea that I was only ever told by dietitians when you go to the diabetic clinic was eat as healthily as you can. The same way they would say to anyone, you know, have a healthy diet. It's just the fact that if I don't adhere to a healthy diet, there can be more of a problematic thing as a result. But it's a better idea for everyone to just eat a healthier diet, you know, cut out all the stuff that you know is bad for you. So I think that's the thing is like trying to avoid eating things that aren't going to be helpful. Now, it doesn't mean you have to go, oh, I can't ever eat sugar again, you know. One thing that was a big revelation for me was when a diabetic nurse or somebody said to me, look, if there's that piece of a cake or something that you want to eat, all you have to do is adjust your insulin to account for that. Mm-hmm. And if you make sure you're taking the right amount of insulin, it means you're breaking down the sugar that's in that. Now, in general, for everybody, they might be healthier not to eat that cake because there's other things going on there as well. You know, there'll be fat and stuff, things. And I suppose it's just like that thing that the more you're not, doing your health any favors then the more chance there are that all kinds of things could you know not work out so i think the, the key is it's just the stuff that you would kind of expect is eat as healthily as you can and from my point of view that's go plant food eat vegetables and fruit as much as you can and um, avoid refined sugar as much as you can you don't have to cut it out entirely or you know like like if you if you take the really big coffee because you think yeah i better get the big one and then you're like running to the toilet all the time and you kind of think ah next time i'm gonna take the smaller one ah you know it's like little things like that but i think the main thing is you can have a relatively normal existence it's like everything there's always things that could be worse there's always things that could be better um but you, you can you can live with it 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 cannot have to define you but at the same time I think most diabetics at some point will have lived a period of time where all they were trying to do was be seen as I'm just like everybody else Mm -hmm. and really probably like life in general we don't really want to be like everybody else that's Mm -hmm. bloody boring so it's probably better to be get used to being as upfront as you can about it so that it's not a big deal later. I had a question about your diagnosis and everything because you mentioned you were slightly older when you were diagnosed. Did you have symptoms before then and how did that all like come about and everything? Um, so I was about 14 and as I said I was doing lots of sport back in those days and I think um, my memory is that I came home from a, a rugby practice or something after school and then my mom said oh I have to take you up to the hospital to get this blood test done and I suppose I remember thinking this is what, what's going on here mm. um, especially because I thought I was so super he- healthy and sporty she had noticed that I was really thirsty all the time and run into the toilet loads and back in those days I never drank water like I hated the idea of drinking water 
I still probably do kind of, I find it so boring. You know, if you put a little bit of dilutable juice or something and it's a, even just colored it, never mind, flavored it, mm-hmm. you could convince me to drink something, but I would never, someone go, are you thirsty? Do you want a glass of water? And I'd go like, no, it's boring. It feels like I'm drowning whenever I'm drinking it. And I was like drinking water, like, you know, like there was none left. So I was drinking jugs and jugs of water. Um, so she'd noticed this and then she noticed that I was running to the loo as well. So those are like prime kind of symptoms. Mm-hmm. So she took, took me up to get this blood test on and then they were like, yeah, your sugar's a bit on the high side. Now, going back to what I'd said earlier about the fact that two years before that was when they thought I had epilepsy and done all the scans for that. It kind of also shows you that probably doing a lot of exercise and sport and generally eating a pretty rounded diet you know you still you still will probably have to take insulin but over the years there's been plenty of uh, sciencey people who have had the idea that you can control things with diet if you want to and using other things like echinacea and other stuff i think the fact that i was probably so sporty then meant that even though my my sugar was on the higher side it wasn't like huge mm-hmm. um which it, it means actually probably my mom had done a really good job of kind of getting it right there because um most people when they're first diagnosed and taken into hospital their sugar's like through the roof high and they're kind of like you know in danger of ketoacidosis and all this kind of stuff it's funny though because a lot of the symptoms for people finding out they're diabetic are very similar to symptoms of other things so it's kind of it's tricky but i think it was the level of thirst and going to the toilet was something that it was just like nothing i'd ever experienced before it was like you thought you were like the most dehydrated person ever and your bladder wasn't working. It was just like everything was just going straight through you. And what was the biggest change like after you'd been diagnosed to like adjust to it? Um, especially then, I suppose, because being a teen- teenager. Mm-hmm. And I was quite I was quite a loud child. I mean, I'm saying loud, probably wrong use of a word. Um, I wasn't I wasn't scared. And I was I used to say I was always like the kid who'd stand up on the chair, like go and look at me and I was always kind of leading the way on things and trying to like get people to do stuff. And, you know, it was just a bit fearless. I think I suppose you move into teenage years, you're going to, things are going to change anyway, but I definitely think I lost a bit of confidence. I've, I've, I've thought about it a lot since. And I think that what it was like was like back then I used to think I was like invincible, like, and I probably did think I was going to live forever and all these kind of things. And then it was like your body kind of goes, well, if this part of me, doesn't work properly then what's to say other things aren't going to work well and then that just like chips away so you get to the point then where actually you completely lose all that over zealousness overconfidence and everything and I think initially I definitely didn't like I didn't ever like anybody drawing attention to it so I'd almost like overcompensate to try to prove people that I was more normal than they were yeah, the, the, funny enough, the diet thing wasn't such a big deal. The, now, there was an argument whenever we were kids that I used to eat the wrong kinds of like fizzy sweets and stuff to the point where like my teeth would be falling out. Um, <laughs> around that period of time in my teens, um, I just, I had far more of a rounded diet as I said than my brother. It was definitely a moment of going, oh, I have to drink Diet Coke from now on instead of regular Coke. Now, when you look back on that, I just think, does it really matter? Because now the idea of drinking Coke, it's not necessarily the go-to. I'd far rather have some pure apple juice, to be honest. But back then, that was like a big deal because diet drinks were like, you know. But yeah. you put a can of Diet Coke in, in a fridge and get it cold enough, you know, it's still not the same, but you can kind of fudge it a bit more. I didn't like, people used to always say, 
like if, if I was in file form, which I often was, which I think was just natural state, wasn't necessarily diabetes. I would hate people going, oh, is your blood sugar low? Or, you know, you know, they immediately have to try to find a reason and define that it's because you have this condition that you're now in a bad mood. And I used to hate that. And it used to confuse me as well when I'd go to diabetic clinics and they would say, you know, well, how do you feel? You know, do you, do you, do you think you're depressed or whatever? And I would kind of go, well, come on, guy, you know, explain yourself. Because I, I was always like kind of chicken and egg about it. I was like, do you mean, do I think because a bit of my body doesn't work that like chemically and I now am more depressed? Or is it because I know I have a condition that that's going to make me think in a way that means that I'm depressed? And they'd always just go like, and then like move on to the next question. <laughs> I was like, no, you have to explain the thing to me, you know? Because um, I always thought, would I have probably been quite a miserable get regardless or was it from that moment on yeah. you know and I think because I was such a even my, my, my mother said it to me like probably in the last five or ten years whenever I going through some particular time of just moaning and groaning and giving out about the world and she was just like what happened to you you were such like a, a joyous little positive child <laughs> and then I think that made me think uh probably diabetes mother <laughs> that's really what happened but I, th- I think, you know, like everything, I think it's just, it, it probably opened the door to other things because it's like what I said, you suddenly go, I'm fallible. I'm, I'm not invincible. Yeah. I feel like when you're that age, you kind of know that death's a thing, but you're not so like, I could die. You know, mm. you haven't. that's why, you know, when you see kids, like, I don't know, like playing or skiing or whatever, they're just like, go crazy and they're fearless because they yeah. have no mortality and as soon as you realize that you can die quite easily and it could happen at any time I feel like that messes everybody up like that's what happened to me I was like wait I could die yeah (laughs) and it does because you haven't really thought that before because you're young and you're healthy and people live until they're old and it's just like yeah and I think like it's funny because then you know I would say now you know, I can go from being, you know, the most miserablest guy or the most sensitive or the most scared to at sometimes being the most exuberant and the most energetic and forceful on things. I think I swing kind of to, to extremes. And I've definitely been guilty of being the most reckless in the room as well. And there's part of me that kind of goes, is that is that due to like my mental state? And at times me thinking, oh, well, who cares anyway that, you know, that's what I think about all the time is like, how much do these things define who we are? Because I think we spend so much time not wanting them to be. Mm. Um, But maybe they define us in good ways. Maybe they define us in bad ways at different times. Because I think because I was such a little sort of like the kid always putting his hand up, being that kid when I was young, I almost wonder, regardless if there'd been any diabetes, would I still have been the guy 20, 30 years later, always trying to prove something or be the first and all this or is it because of what happened then I'm always overcompensating so I think I'm always questioning that you know and also the thing is like other people you said something that was really like struck a nerve with me when you were saying you know are you acting this way because of your diabetes or because of this condition and I feel like that's a scapegoat for a lot of people and a lot of people to justify other people's emotions because I get that it's like oh are you acting hormonal because of your PCOS and I'm like probably but I'm also upset like it's not I don't feel like they should both be so isolated and I think 
yeah, like when you talk about internally, yeah, would I be a different person if I didn't have this condition? But would I find something else to kind of put in place of that? Or would other people come to me and put that, put myself in that place for me? <laughs> if oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, completely. So it sucks. You're, it's kind of a rock in a hard place trying to yeah. define yourself and not define yourself through your condition because it's so easy because there's Facebook forums, there's Reddit forums about you know having this community and it's like it's great to have a community for that but is there a time when it becomes so ingrained in your personality it's not a personality trait you know (laughs) i've definitely been finding that recently because um i've started this youtube channel about epilepsy i joined loads of epilepsy groups on facebook and then i literally had to unfollow them because every time I opened it, all I was seeing was epilepsy, epilepsy, epilepsy. And it was just like constantly like, don't forget that yeah. <laughs> you have epilepsy. And it was just too much. Sometimes I think this like constant reminder or someone just like, you know, one of your friends would be like, have you remembered to take your pills? And I'm like, maybe I haven't remembered to take my pills, but can you just leave me alone and stop thinking about my epilepsy all the time? But also thanks for reminding me. But like, I feel like constantly being reminded is sometimes just exhausting. Yeah, I think that is the difficult part, but it, it links into kind of what I'm like with most things. I'm, I am definitely inherently kind of lazy or I'm definitely inherently reluctant so say it's even if we're talking about some issue that i'm interested in if people are sending me oh you should listen to this or whatever i'm just so bad at that because i immediately go oh but when i think about like my mom used to buy these diabetic magazines came out every month she'd always sign up and get the subscription even though i would like it would arrive and i'd throw it in the bin and throw a big tantrum and go screw that like she kept buying them even after i'd left home and everything because you know she thought it was worth doing and my sister will often send me like a podcast quite into health stuff and she'll send me ones if there was like somebody had like a specialist on talking about something and I have tried to listen to some of those but I think it's like what you're saying there that you just kind of sometimes just want to go I don't want and I remember one of our neighbors um a friend of mine his younger brother I think developed diabetes I remember his mom was really active at doing like local um sponsored walks and things and being very much involved in the diabetic societies and stuff and I always shied away from I'd really like try to hide from being asked to get involved in anything and that was just I think I could compare that to something else though it wouldn't have to be diabetes I think that just became my way of dealing with things was no I don't want to do that or throw that away or whatever now I want to look back on it I think I probably wish I'd done more of that because I think it wasn't till way later that I would have gone on one of these back to basic courses, which you do with other diabetics. And then there is something in that of like meeting other people and it being more normalized that it can be helpful. And then you feel like, okay, I can get some from, from this. And I think if I went back to my younger self, I would have said, see one of those sponsored walks or, or one of those magazines or whatever, just give it a go. Yeah. It probably doesn't help whenever you completely cut yourself off, which I definitely did for long periods of time. But then, like we were saying before, I feel like that just ties into general teenage, you know, rebellion, not wanting to be what other people would be or whatever. Um, I don't know if you've experienced this with talking to other people about it, but the one thing I found really, really useful is talking to people who've had similar, like, experience with other kind of, like, side effects let's say that aren't written down as the side effects of your disorder. So like talking to people who are like, yeah, I had really bad anger problems afterwards as well. Or like, you know, I had all this stuff happen to me. My memory isn't very good. 
because I've never been to see a doctor and they've been like, this affects your memory. But then you're like, oh, wait. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah, like we talked about before, also affects your memory. But then it's being like, there are these reasons and other people are experiencing this and it's not just me and it is because of this and I can see that now which I think is like really nice and really helpful so I know no that's actually really interesting you said that because memory was the thing like I I touched on it earlier but it was only when I lived with a girl in East London who was also diabetic and I think her studies aligned with the fact that she was looking into things that um, meant she was probably going to go on to do some deep research in diabetic stuff and she was diabetic but it was she who explained to me she was like you know what happens when you have a hypo and I was like yeah my sugar goes slow whatever and she's like no but like the there are blood vessels in your brain that are popping you know and effectively then they're being destroyed each time and that was around the period of time that I'd noticed that my memory was definitely starting to it was like short-term memory was just starting to be more and I mean you know you kind of go well you're older now Stephen so you know, maybe this is just something that's happening, but it was the way in which it was happening. I just kind of felt like surely this there must be some reason for this. And that was probably a period of time where I was maybe a bit more careless with how I was looking after myself. It probably would have been just after the period of time of having lots of these big hallucinations, which were extreme hypos. So I eventually got to a point where I did one of those back to basics courses and they had like this specialist consultant in to do a talk. And she was like the number one in the world, like, diabetes expert so when it came to the end you know i don't got any questions i was like elbowing people out of the way i was like i am asking this you know uh oh, there you go that i was that was some diabetic brain popping there i've lost my words uh, oracle was the word i was looking for um and i was like right definitively give me an answer can diabetes affect your memory and uh, she sort of she didn't give me a direct answer but she said she did all the explaining of the science of well, it does this and it does this and it does this. So, you know, ultimately, yes, it could affect your memory. And I was kind of like, well, there we go. That's not something that's ever been mentioned to me before. I was just sitting there thinking, oh, here we are, onset, early dementia, you know. But yeah. Don't worry. I think everyone here has memory. <laughs> various things. So it's okay. <laughs> I can never remember what I have to say. That's why I always end up interrupting people because I feel like I have to get it out before it leaves my brain. Just like quickly going to say it, we can come yeah. back to it later. <laughs> I did decide to look up, because I told you guys about my letter. It says, there are signs that I have diabetic maculopathy. So I just thought I'd look up, what is diabetic maculopathy? The macula is the part of the eye that helps to provide us with our central vision. Diabetic maculopathy is when the macula sustains some form of damage. One such case of macular damage is from diabetic macular edema, whereby blood vessels near to the macula leak fluid or protein onto the macula. Oh, leak, leaky, leaky fluid, leaky proteins. If the leakages cause the retina to be hardened and, I don't know how you say that word, exudates, deposits of fat from the blood becomes significantly large and close to the fovea, then the condition is termed as clinically significant macula edema, which... I don't, haven't been told I have that yet. And the symptoms are blurring of one's central vision. It may be noticed by trouble when reading. Hmm, have I had trouble? Maybe. Recognizing faces in the center of your vision. 
I don't think maybe I have experience. I, I yeah, probably would just think I have to put my glasses on. And how is it treated? Mild macular edema may resolve itself without treatment. Now there you go. That's basically people having a disability. That is that is it all in a nutshell, really. May resolve itself without treatment. Brilliant. Um, so most people. <laughs> We'll need the first line of diabetic maculopathy treatment, which is laser photocoagulation treatment. Other treatments include having injections of water called anti-VEGF drugs, antivascular endothelia, I should have thought about this, growth factor, such as, anyway, that's some drugs that they can inject into your eyeballs. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it, it does. That entire thing was like... <laughs> <laughs> It does look like they can they can laser your eyes, so they'll just like they'll seal off those <laughs> little bits. Mr. Um, Bond. Laser therapy will burn the retina, but in small quantities that the eye can recover from. Well, that's good news. That's the first bit of good news I've got all morning. Laser surgery can be painful and may make your vision worse initially. After the first few weeks, if the treatment has been successful, you should notice an improvement in your vision. But then, as I said before, you know, I get, you get your eyes checked every year. And I would say over the course of the last five years, I've probably had my eyes scanned. They say they're fine. You go the next time. Oh, it looks like there's a bit of damage. We better send you to Murfield's Hospital. Go to Murfield's. Oh, no, it looks like your eyes are all right now. Send you back to the other guys. And it kind of goes back and forth. Because the other thing is when they check your eyes, this is what they told me. It's a bit like the long-term blood sugar, blood out of your arm. They're looking at what your diabetes was like six months ago. So they, the scan this time around, they said, right, there's signs of damage. So let's see, what was six months ago? So it was like a couple of months into the old pandemic. Probably wasn't looking after myself, if I'm completely honest. Um, probably have been looking after myself better in the last month, potentially. If I get an appointment with Murrayfield's Eye Hospital in four months' time, I could totally imagine I'd go in and they say, oh, actually, it doesn't look as bad. It's never really clear cut. But it's almost amazing how many, um, how much they can find with just testing out your eyes, like how many diseases and disabilities and, and, and things like that. Like my mom, um, we found out that uh, she had a brain tumor because there was swelling in her eyes. And oh, it, 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 yeah, so they like one of her like cornea nerves were swelling and they're like, okay, let's do further tests with MRIs and stuff like that. But it's amazing. It's one of those things where people kind of overlook doing eye, you know, tests mm -hmm. and yeah. Super yeah. important to take care of it. Well, that's the thing as well. I should have said before that with diabetics, it is it, the thing that is most talked about is losing your eyesight or having mm. your feet cut off because it's like your, your extremities effectively. It's everywhere really where blood vessels matter. And if you don't control your blood sugar levels, you can develop blockages in your blood vessels. So your eyes are the first thing to go with that because they're all about the blood vessels and your extremities. So your feet can be the thing to go. And they always tell you to check your feet, check your sensitivity, because the idea is that you'll lose sensitivity first in your feet, and then you'll go and you'll stand on something and not realize that you've just stood on some glass or whatever, cut your foot, your foot will get infected, and then it'll have to be cut off. That's the, the things that you have to most worry about. So, and I, I think that's what's been frustrating me a wee bit lately, is that over the last eight or 10 months, the I've got really, my tinnitus has got really bad in my ears again. And I think I was always prepared for losing my eyesight, but I kind of thought as long as I've got my ears, it's all right. Mm -hmm. So then I'm starting to go as a, a bit of a bugger. Um, like working in audio, least, you're like, I don't really need yeah. eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, I'll just be feeling around for, for a blind deaf man uh, with you no like feet. Your Adobe audition on your screen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, all these things are possibilities, but then everything's possible. You know, you get knocked down by a bus tomorrow. I've kind of always grew. I used to say it just to kind of get a reaction, but I definitely grew up realizing that you know life expectancy should probably be a bit less. But again, it's like everything. It's like, you know, you have that healthy diet. You look after yourself. There's not, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be a, this is your ceiling or whatever. But it's a bit like everything. You know, if you, if you adopt the exercise regime of an Olympic roar, you know, you probably keep on going. But it's like, do you, are you prepared to put in that training? Probably not in my, in my case. But maybe I'll get somewhere along the line, you know, maybe like an amateur roar who, you know, does it occasionally so some people have a pump instead of injecting which is kind of automated it's not fully automated but it can give you a stronger control and actually i probably should have been on one ages ago i was offered it at one point and i just didn't like the idea of having something attached and then my dad's cousin who i only really met in the last few years has one she's really active she does like canoeing and stuff i think she had lots of experiences of people saying you can't do this you can't do that all this sort of stuff and she's kind of broken all those taboos, you know, having family, being into sports, going canoeing and stuff. And she actually sp- explained to me that the one that she had, it's like waterproof now. So that would have been my first thing was, oh man, I get that. I can't go swimming. Like when was the last time I went swimming anyway? But you know, <laughs> but still, this, idea, this idea of like, don't you restrict me. But actually <laughs> then she was like, no, I go canoeing all the time with it. You can go swimming, no bother. But she explained that like it really does help you to stay on that little tightrope a lot better and then this was one of the other questions that i asked the super duper consultant at one of those back to basics uh, training things was so now that i have the sensor on my arm which can automatically tell me without having to prick my fingers and that people have pumps now that you basically it's it's automatically giving you the dose of insulin as, as you need it i was like can this not talk to this and then i'm like robocop or you know, cyborg guy, fully automated. And she was like, well, one company owns this and one company owns this. And that is the story of, you know, disabilities and medications in this world in 2020. It's all about the monies, always about the monies. But it means there is essentially things are in place that people could be fully automatic and not have to put their fingers or inject themselves unfortunately they told me that 20 years ago that it was just around the corner and it feels like it's still around the corner so it's there's a lot of bureaucracy and politics and money wrangling and uh, all that so i'm 38 so hopefully to do it in the next 20 years otherwise you know might be cutting it tight how does the sensor actually work because obviously it's in your arm but what is it actually- that's a good question yeah and i'm sure they explained this to me and now i can't remember the, the exact sense of it it when you when you see it before it goes in it looks like it's got a needle but i think that's actually a piece of plastic i think effectively because the needle on my injection pen is only little because it's only just going under your your skin so you do it in the fattiest part of you because it's just going under the skin and getting absorbed and so i my understanding is that this sensor thing is also just going under the skin and it's reading your glucose level from that that part as opposed to being kind of directly into your it's not like into your vein like into your blood supply but I will say that um, I mean, they are great. and It does make it a lot easier. But I have had quite a few times of them getting knocked off my arm. Sometimes my own fault. Um, trying to go through doors that are too, 
I'm too fat for or whatever. Um, I've had occasions actually just from I ran for a flight once at home in Belfast in like 30 degree heat and I was sweating like a pig again because I need to do more exercise and it just peeled off my arm because it must have been so, so much sweat. So they're not, they're definitely not foolproof and they're 50 quid a go. So, I mean, not for me, obviously big up the NHS. I remember inquiring maybe five or 10 years ago and if I was in America, the cost of what I get on the NHS would have been like $400 a month. That was like five or 10 years ago. Yeah, it's um, ridiculous. <laughs> so, I mean, like really without trying to be more dramatic than it really is, is a, a, a life or death sentence, you know, for people if they can't afford it, you know, if, yeah. where there's, you know, poverty there's what can you do you know and i think i should have the nhs tattoos all over my body you know if i was currently living in a country where i had to pay for any of my medication i would just quite simply be fucked you know yeah. i'd be dead within a month probably the only thing now i think about getting older and maybe finally growing up is me finally kind of appreciating things that i took for granted before and that's definitely a huge one you know even i tell you one thing you know uh i didn't realize until i'd moved to london that England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland have their own rules within that on things. Yeah. Like in Northern Ireland, and I presume in Scotland as well, you get free prescription for anything. So like you need an antibiotic, you need, I don't know, pain meds, whatever it is, it's free there. The first time I was over here and I went to get a prescription for something and they were like, do you pay? And I was like, did I say, oh, no, no, I'm diabetic. I have an exemption. No, but then it was for, it was just for something regular. And, and they were like, looking for money i was like what are you talking about it's free You're like no not here and then so that made me then kind of go that's mad that you have to pay for that and then you go no but steve think about all the places elsewhere in the world where you have to pay for all your diabetic crap as well and look at the price of it and then it's like holy god it literally is a death sentence elsewhere and i used to i used to say to everyone Again, this is where your mind goes. You know, we're we're living in in times where a lot a lot of time it feels like it's getting more towards sci-fi things that we've seen, you know, and proper apocalypse and stuff. Um, when I was younger, I actually used to kind of thrive on the idea that if you were in like a war-torn place or an apocalyptic place where everything's going to shit, that life would have more value. So people like me that probably spend too much time sitting around being miserable when really you're doing nothing, you're just getting miserable because you're doing nothing, that all of a sudden life would have more value if you're, you know, say you're having to run away from zombies or you're having to do something, all of a sudden it adds value to the life, even though the life is like in the middle of a war or in the middle of whatever. And I kind of like, I wouldn't say I got excited about the idea, but it made me think I'd be really good in that kind of a context. It'd be like, now I've got something to live for and, and put my mind to. And then all of a sudden I went, what are you talking about, mate? You'd be dead within a few weeks because you wouldn't have any insulin. Yeah. So, uh, I was like, about to say, read the pharmacy first. Everyone goes yeah, to the supermarket yeah. will just be in the pharmacy, like grabbing all the insulin and shoving it into a bag. So now, like, I always imagine, you know, some sort of scenario, like, like a tsunami, a big flood coming or something, and everybody else is just, like, running for the hills and everything and freaking out. And I just come out with my deck chair and my sunglasses <laughs> and my, my little drink, and I just sit down. Because it's like, what's the point? It doesn't matter if I get to the top of the mountain. 
be able to chill in a bit, you know, tandem. Do you know that meme? Uh, it was like Jurassic World, and the guy, everyone was running away from the dinosaurs, and there was one guy holding like a margarita running away <laughs> as well. That would be you. <laughs> Can you have both type 1 and type 2 diabetes at the same time? No, because it's, ju- it's just about how much your pancreas is working. So mine just so is. If you have type 1, it's not at all. Right, right. Yeah. Whereas type 2, it's sort of kicking out a bit. So I would say, yes, folks, look up everything. But my memory was that type 1 was your pancreas does not work at all. I used to say, might as well take it out and throw it against the wall for all the good it'll do me. And I think type 2, it kicks out a little bit eventually. What about with traveling? Like, because you need to like check in your insulin, right? Is that. Oh, that's. Good one. You can't, you absolutely cannot ever have your insulin. So you don't ever put it in the hold because it can freeze in there and then it's completely useless to you. So you always have to make sure it's on you. Which the way that kind of flights and stuff are going is getting trickier the way that, you know, I would have frequently been somebody who travels with just cabin luggage only. But now a lot of the um, airlines are like, okay, but you have to pay more if you want this and then they always want to put it in the hold and everything so i'm waiting for the day where i have to have a full-on fight with a <laughs> airline you're grabbing one into the staff. luggage yeah. yeah um because um, i always carry like a little canvasy handbag thing in my cabin luggage so that i think if they absolutely go this has to go in the hold i'll go well let me take out that stuff and put it in here I do always kind of wonder about that and think, but like going to the restaurants and do they really care to ask, are you, are you allergic to this, whatever? Do they actually know what it means with an insulin? You know, this cannot go in the hold. Otherwise I'm screwed when I get to, you know, Costa Rica for three weeks or whatever. So I talked about what it was like having hypos. And I said that the opposite of having high sugar for long periods of time, it really is like a long-term thing. It'll damage your organs, damage your eyes and your whatever else but actually also what can happen when you have it high is a thing called ketone acidosis and that will happen if you don't take your insulin over a period of time is something i realized got so used to especially in lockdown because days pretty similar but you know i'm checking my sugar at least every meal time and probably in between now that i can just scan my arm and check it anytime and whenever it goes into double figures, so it's, it was 12 there, so I'd be thinking, right, I need to do an injection. But say it got to 17 or even 20-something, you're immediately injecting. So within 15 minutes, it's going to be back in a more reasonable area. I'd forgotten that if you're out somewhere and you've forgotten your injection or something, if you're at that number and you don't deal with it, it's a bit like going the other way. If you don't deal with it, things get worse and worse. And actually, you can develop ketone acidosis really quite quickly. And until I definitely knew that I experienced it in more recent years, I realized that actually I'd experienced it quite a few times before that and not realized largely because it went hand in hand with drinking an awful lot. The time where it happened where I totally knew what happened, I'd been out the night before I went to work, maybe it was about five years ago in London and in the tea shop I was working in. And I realized I didn't have one of my insulin pens. And Again, a bit like what I'd said before about not wanting to go into the staff room and you have low blood sugar because you don't want people to think you're skiving. I thought, oh, I'll just keep going, get through the day at work, I'll get home and I'll get it and everything will be all right. And it was already high, so it just kept kind of going up high. And I just started to feel rotten. It was like, you know, like literally feeling like, but, you know, I was thinking at the time I was just hungover and it was a result of drinking too much the night before. But it got to the point when we were closing up the tea shop 
the girl who was closing the tea shop with me said, look, just lie down there. I'll do, I'll do the clear up because she could see like I was pale as a ghost. I was just feeling awful and uh, totally felt like I was going to throw up every five seconds. And I just thought you've drank too much. This is what happens when you drink too much. And managed to get on the bus home and this, I, on the bus, I was like, I'm just going to be sick everywhere. As soon as I got off the bus, I just like, what do you call it? Like the exorcist, like projectile <laughs> vomit. Yeah. I was crawling along the floor because I just felt so rotten. And then after that, I learned what ketone acidosis was. And that's exactly what it is. It's like your body's being poisoned and it's literally going, get this out of here as quickly as you can. Highs and lows, both bad because you don't want that as much as you don't want to have a hypo. You get used to going a bit high and you'll feel... It's weird because people always say, what's it like being low? What's it like being high? Low is like flaky, fainty, weak and shaky. And high is like lethargic, almost a bit like post-Christmas dinner. like, And you feel kind of dizzy and th- thirsty probably as well. And just just kind of rotten just like like you have to be diluted that's what you kind of feel like it's like you can kind of almost feel like there's too much sugar in there and if you inject you know within 15 minutes you can be feeling back normal again but if you don't it just sort of keeps heightening and getting worse to the point where you just feel that you're going to throw up because it's like your body's just going get this poison out of me you know hypos and ketone acidosis are not really nice <laughs> not at all no, it doesn't sound great. No, so I'm not. I'm not bright. No. <laughs> Famous diabetics. Halle Berry is a diabetic. Really? And yeah, so there's a prime example of you can be fully fit and healthy and well looking. Because I remember when I was younger, it was a thing when we were talking earlier about like the time I was in the sugar babes. They referred to everybody being very pale, and I was like that's not like a thing. That's just because we're pasty pale people. <laughs> um, but yeah, I remember get, going through this period of time where I thought that if you were diabetic, you had to look ill. Mm. And then I was kind of like, oh, hold on, look at Holly Berry. I don't think she looks ill. <laughs> you know, uh, St- Steve Redgrave, the Olympic rower, although he developed it later, but still at the same time, he won more goals after. So you can have a healthy body and be diabetic. I did actually notice a guy playing rugby for Wales maybe a year or two ago. And I saw the sensor on his arm and I was like, oh, that's mad. More of it to me, it was mad. He was playing with the sensor in his arm because I was like, I knocked them off my body for fun. How's he going to play rugby and keep it on? But um, that was pretty cool as well. Yeah, I was just looking at the percentage of people in the world who have type 1 diabetes and it um, says less than 1%. So almost kind of similar to epilepsy, which is 1%. But if you think about yeah. that, that's actually a huge amount of the world's population. Yeah. yeah. I feel like every time I regurgitate something that I remember being told, you know, I can't think where I'm pulling it from. So to me, this could have been a five years ago or a 10 years ago, but I think it was probably more like 15 or 20 years ago stat, which was one in four people have diabetes and they don't even know it. So, I mean, that number was always getting higher, but it, it, has, it is definitely more common. And it's not, I, I don't think it's necessary though. There you go. There's another kind of misconception. I don't think that it's more common now. I think it's just that it's being diagnosed more now. Yeah. Like that was something that some wise person said to me recently. Do you realize that in the last 50 years, plenty of people who died, whose deaths weren't explained, they could have been diabetic and nobody knew. I have heard it called an epidemic or whatever, but I think it's, it definitely has the potential to be severe. 
because whilst you can live with it, like what we were saying before, most people who especially have type two, it'll be a secondary condition to something else they have. So maybe this is a good way to round it up. I was thinking um, in terms of like, well, what does diabetes mean for the rest of my life and everything? Maybe the silver lining will be that finally when it gets to that point where I have to have my foot cut off, then my disability will be less invisible. So I'll get the job because <laughs> I'll be in a wheelchair. <laughs> If he cut off, then you'll be fine. Oh my god. So we live a dark end. <laughs> gotta gotta find that silver lining. Always yeah. on the bright side. Less money on socks. Yeah. <laughs> well that's funny because I threw out one sock the other day because I had a hole in it. So I should keep those single socks. <laughs> <laughs> and when I go blind, I'm gonna get eyeballs tattooed onto my eyelids. <laughs> Or the cool eye patch. Like in, what's it called? Pan's Labyrinth, where he's walking around like that. Yeah. That would look cool. I just wear a VR headset all the time. Yeah. Like I'm an avatar. Just a gamer. Yeah. He's not blind. He just just loves He's living in the real world. (laughs) Shall we wrap this up? It's been fun, though. Thank you guys for letting me get involved. Really interesting. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening to the Disability Podcast with Bethany, Cameron, Zoe, and Steve. Yay! See you next time, or or maybe not if your vision isn't that good. See you next time. (laughs) This is the Disability Podcast.